Hey everyone, how's it going? Today we're going to be talking about something that isn't controversial at all, and that's deification, um, or divinization, or theosis. And this episode is going to be broken up into four sections. First, um, definitions beginning with the Eastern position, then we're going to talk about the Western position, then we're going to ask whether or not there is a biblical warrant and then we're going to discuss little God theology within the context of the Word of Faith movement, um, because I didn't have time to do the proper reading on Mormonism. Uh, that said, I realized right whenever I started recording this, that for the Western view, I did not read through the Wesleyan articulation. I believe that he held a form of theosis. I'm not sure what that looks like. I know that his emphasis was on uh, the growth in divine love, and love being like the the designation, I believe, of theosis. Uh, but don't quote me on that. Um, go read up on his position if you're curious about where he lands on that. For the Western position, I, I stuck with Lutheran and Reformed traditions. Um, and so that's that. I, I didn't go into Roman Catholicism's view or anything like that. Um, which Roman Catholicism falls into a sacramental deification, uh, where it's deification via the sacraments. And Eastern Orthodoxy puts an emphasis on the Eucharist um, as well, where it's sacramental. But I wanted to throw Eastern Orthodoxy in here so that um, we can compare it to the Western ideas, because Eastern Orthodoxy is not often discussed. So I wanted to discuss that. And then, of course, I wanted to talk about little God theology within the Word of Faith, um, you know, our contemporary setting, because that's a current trend in um, at least Western Americanized Christianity, even though uh, Word of Faith has been exported to other countries. But that's a lot of wind to say little. So the topic of deification within our contemporary setting is often met with a knee-jerk reaction. Um, deification is seen as heresy uh, by a number of evangelicals um, or Protestants in general. Uh, and to the extent that this reaction can be justified, uh, given the position of deification in the Latter-day Saints or Mormonism, right? Um, and, of course, little God theology. Uh, so there is a proper place for having a sensitive reaction to it, but at the same time, that doesn't excuse us from having a proper understanding of what Orthodox teachings, proper doctrine teaches in regards to theosis. Um, what is often overlooked, then, is that deification has been present in Christianity um, from the very early church. Um, and we're going to explain what it is and what it isn't, so just bear with me as we walk through this. Um, and while we could say um, that um, we don't find it very much in our contemporary Western settings, there is a sense in which it's still present, but underneath a different name, um, especially within evangelical circles and um, the relational emphasis of union in Christ. Um, but it's always been historically present in both Western and Eastern churches. And with that said, um, there are a number of journal articles that um, trace the trajectory of soteriology in the early church. I apologize for the, the gravelly voice. I don't know what my deal is today. It's got some allergies or something. But there's been a um, good amount of discussion on the trajectory in the early church, and you'll find three trajectories. But they're not 
so simplified that you can always split them apart. There's always elements of each other within uh, the early church writings. And so you have these three trajectories. You have the judicial trajectory where emphasis is placed on the atonement, the atonement for sins, uh, being covered in righteousness, right? That idea of imputation, um, our legal standing with God, that's the judicial um, trajectory. And that's most often emphasized in the West. And so our emphasis tends to be on the atonement. Now, within the Eastern um, trajectories, there are two. And take these two terms I'm, I'm going to use for these trajectories with a grain of salt because they're my designations, not necessarily a proper designation, would be a mystic trajectory and a participatory trajectory. Um, and this tends to find itself emphasizing the incarnation. Uh, and you see this especially with Athanasius. Athanasius seems to be more uh, concerned about participation uh, with our union in Christ. And there's also an emphasis on resurrection. So the focus in these are both less about the atonement, though they don't completely remove the atonement, just as the West doesn't completely remove participation in the life of the triune God. Uh, but their emphasis is on resurrection and the incarnation, the importance of uh, being saved from corruption, living and participating in the Holy Spirit, um, and recognizing that actual transformative power of the work of Christ. Um, so again, I, I want to say again that this does not exclude these other positions from you know one another. In, in the West, you will find both, but there's an emphasis on the atonement, the, the judicial status, especially for Protestants, the judicial status of the Christian in light of Christ's work. And then in the East, you'll find more of this emphasis on the resurrection and living on that new life. Um, some would say that uh, the difference is Christ as victim versus Christ as victor. I think that's a little bit oversimplified. It's, it's a hard topic. And so uh, before we get into all this, I really want you to go dive more into this if you're interested. Um, like everything, check me. Um, I could be mistaken. Um, but let's go ahead and get into it from there. So we'll begin the discussion on deification with the explanation of deification within Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, because this is where the term is mo most often found. For Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, the incarnation and the moments of Pentecost, and of course Pentecost is where the Holy Spirit meets the believers in Jerusalem, these two events are particularly emphasized. And it's first by the incarnation of Christ, the, the taking upon a human nature uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And there's this focal point on the being united to Christ via the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer and deifies them. Uh, the idea is simple enough, really. Through communion with the Holy Spirit, we participate in the divine nature and become like God. And we're going to define what that is and what that isn't here in a second. Uh, another designation for deification is theosis. Now, the Eastern writers are fresh in our mind from the Through Nicaea series. And so, again, like I mentioned, Athanasius is particularly noted in regards to holding this idea, and as well as the Cappadocians, especially Basil. Um, but Athanasius is famous for his quote that Christ became a man that we might become God. And we briefly touched on what that meant in the Through Nicaea series, and I kind of just put a pin in it. Um, but ultimately, because Christ took upon himself our nature, we can now participate via the Holy Spirit in the divine nature of God and grow into conform with God. Now, the divine nature in this context is not participating in the divine essence of God, but rather in his energies or in the West, his graces. Um, and that's that's a really important distinction. Um, 
So for the sake of clarity and proper representation, I'm just going to quote the Eastern Orthodox Study Bible. Uh, they have an article inside of it on deification, and we're just going to read it in a whole here. Uh, deification is the ancient theological word used to describe the process by which a Christian becomes more like God. St. Peter speaks of this process when he writes, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, you may be partakers of the divine nature. What does it mean to be partakers of the divine nature, and how do we experience this? To give an answer, let us first address what deification is not and to describe what it is. What deification is not? When the church calls us to pursue godliness, to be more like God, this does not mean that human beings become divine. We do not become like God in his nature. That would not only be heresy, it would be impossible, for we are human, we always have been human, and we always will be humans. We cannot take on the nature of God. St. John of Damascus makes a remarkable observation. The word God in Scripture refers not to divine nature or essence, for that is unknowable. God refers to divine energies, the power and grace of God that we can perceive in this world. The Greek word for God, theos, comes from the verb meaning run, see, or burn. And these are energy words, so to speak, not essence words. In John 10.34, Jesus, quoting Psalm 81.6, repeats the passage, uh, You are God's. The fact that he was speaking to a group of hypocritical religious leaders who were accusing him of blasphemy makes the meaning doubly clear. Jesus is not using God to refer to divine nature. We are gods in that we bear his image, not his nature. Uh, what deification is? Deification means that we are to become more like God through his grace or divine energies. In creation, humans were made in the image and likeness of God, uh, according to human nature. In other words, humanity by nature is an icon or image of deity. The divine image is in all humanity. Through sin, however, the image and likeness of God was marred and we fell. When the Son of God assumed our humanity in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the process of our being renewed in God's image and likeness was begun. Thus, those who are joined to Jesus Christ through faith and holy baptism begin a process of recreation, being renewed in God's image and likeness. We become, as St. Peter writes, partakers of the divine nature. Because of the incarnation of the Son of God, because of the fullness of God has inhabited human flesh, being joined to Christ means that it is again possible to experience deification, the fulfillment of our human destiny. That is, through union with Christ, we become by grace what God is by nature. We become children of God. His deity interpenetrates our humanity. Historically, deification has often been illustrated by the example of a sword in the fire. A steel sword is thrust into a hot fire until the sword takes on a red glow. The energy of the fire interpenetrates the sword. The sword never becomes fire, but it picks up the properties of fire. By application, the divine energies interpenetrate the human nature of Christ. When we are joined to Christ, our humanity is interpenetrated with the energies of God through Christ's glorified flesh. Nourished by the body and blood of Christ, we partake in the grace of God his strength, his righteousness, his love, and we are enabled to serve him and glorify him. Thus we, being human, are being deified. So the explanation is that through our union of Christ, we are being brought to a state of glorification. Like if, if I could summarize the Eastern view in Western terms, that's all I would say. We partake in grace and we are growing in holiness and we are being conformed to God's image in moral um, uprightness and holiness and to a state of glorification, right? Uh, kind of like whenever Moses would look at God and he would come out glowing. Um, and then he would have to meet with God. And that's that conformity, that conformity to image, the image of God or the image of Christ in particular. Now, to explain things such as the divine energies 
in relation to Eastern Orthodoxy's understanding of Trinitarianism and the knowledge of God would go way beyond our scope here. I know that that's intriguing, but our concern here is this participation in the grace of God. Notice that Eastern Orthodoxy uh, framed it as the energies or the grace of God. And so in the West, we can understand it as that, um, despite our, um, I guess, differences in how we understand the knowability of God um, versus the knowability of his energies or the experience of his energies, etc. Um, so the premises that are worth highlighting. Theosis is not ontologically, by nature, becoming God, but rather becoming like God via our union to Christ. Now, in our tradition, uh, the result of final deification is essentially equal to glorification. Um, this is why whenever I heard um, an Eastern Orthodox adherent, I can't remember who, might have been Hank Hanegraaff after his uh, conversion, said that the West does not have theosis. I was kind of intrigued because we do. We do, we just don't call it that. Um, and so I wonder what he was taught in terms of how the Western views it. Um, if I could concede anything to him, I would say, yeah, uh, there's certainly not the emphasis on that as much. I, perhaps in modern evangelical circles where there's this emphasis on relationship and walking in the Spirit and being united to Christ and, and having a heart change um, and living in the new nature and uh, um, being... Uh, living in your identity in Christ, I there is that. Um, in terms of Protestants and um, the relation to Rome, we certainly have put more of an emphasis on the judicial aspect of forensic justification and things of that nature. Um, so that was a little bit of a sidebar. But basically, having laid that out in brief, I want to point out that this idea, again, is not exclusive to Eastern Orthodoxy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and so let's look at two Western uh, traditions, Lutheranism and Reformed theology. So for the Western, we're going to begin with Lutheranism, particularly with Jordan Cooper, who is a fantastic voice for understanding Lutheran theology. He's kind of my go-to guy now, especially because um, he's not only a conservative Lutheran, but he has a fantastic disposition. And man, that guy has a wealth of knowledge. Uh, he actually has a book discussing the Lutheran approach to theosis, which he calls Christification. Um, overall, his thesis is that Lutherans should adopt the teaching of theosis, given its consistency with the early church, Luther, and Lutheran confessions. So Cooper points out that in the Eastern Orthodox Church, salvation is viewed as participation in Christ, or Christ in us, with a de-emphasis on Christ for us, while for us in Western theology has focused on those legal aspects of soteriology, meaning Christ for us, not necessarily Christ in us. So Cooper states that... Um, Quote, these two conceptions need not be pitted against one another as if soteriology needs to be either or. In agreement with Cooper, I'd say that this dichotomy of focus, um, the East being participation versus the West being more forensic or judicial, is raised very often and exaggerated. But you cannot deny that there is a leaning towards one or the other, and the tendency is to lack balance on that particular point, I would say. Uh, but Cooper goes on to argue that theosis could be seen as Christification, citing a Christological approach to deification. Um, some would argue that the Eastern approach focuses more on pneumatology, that is, the Holy Spirit. Uh, but Cooper points out, as did our Eastern Orthodox article, quote, This is to be carefully distinguished from the concept of apotheosis, which teaches that humans can actually become divine by nature. So that same stress that we don't ontologically become God by nature is brought up in both the Eastern and Lutheran perspectives. And there's much more that he says on the topic of developments in the East, but he ultimately says that the approach of Irenaeus and Athanasius 
um, is a sound Christological and biblically oriented understanding of theosis, which again, if you want to go more into that, I would encourage you to do so. Look up Jordan Cooper's book on theosis. I think it's just called Theosis. Um, but Cooper argues that forensic justification is not contrary to deification, but complementary. Um, and he cites Adolf Honeneck, I think I said that correctly, uh, and is even Evangelical Lutheran dogmatic, which states the mystical union of believers with God consists in that the triune God through the Holy Spirit essentially is graciously present in believers, through which those united with God not only blessedly rejoice and are filled with comfort and peace, but are also made constantly more certain in grace, strengthened in sanctification, and preserved for eternal life. So in summation here, believers have a divine indwelling and union with Christ that accompanies a growth in holiness and brings about the conformity to the image of Christ. A lot of this really is not new for many of us, right? This union is real, but the stress remains that man still remains ontologically man, just enhanced in a glorified state. Uh, there's no blending of natures as pantheists or the Gnostics would have supposed. Uh, and Luther's commentary on Galatians complements this whole discussion. He says, Christ and I must be so closely attached that he lives in me and I in him. What a marvelous way of speaking. Because he lives in me, whatever grace, righteousness, life, peace, and salvation there is in me is all Christ's. Nevertheless, it is mine as well by the cementing and attachment that are through faith by which we become as one body in the Spirit. And you can find this idea in the Lutheran Larger Catechism, and Jonah Cooper summarizes as, God grants his gifts, including creation and the work of Christ. Along with such gifts, he grants himself the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, through this gift, the Christian is able to delight in God's law. This union becomes the basis by which Christians grow in their faith and are daily renewed, killing the old Adam. It is to be noted, however, that the Lutheran approach to this is much less optimistic than the Orthodox, who reach towards a possible goal of sinless perfection prior to one's eschatological glorification. For Luther, the continual forgiveness of sins is still the most essential aspect of the Christian life, though this does not negate the reality of divine indwelling and the actualization of holiness within the Christian. So moving on from there, uh, the Reformed tradition, which is fairly similar to the Lutheran perspective, as the Westminster Larger Catechism puts the order of salvation underneath the entire umbrella of union and communion with Christ. Um, and you find this in questions 65 through 90 of the Larger Catechism. So the emphasis in the Reformed tradition uh, is ultimately the substitutionary and representative dimensions of Christ's work, that is, his active and passive obedience. Um, the legal aspects, like in Lutheranism, are present, but they do not exclude this union with Christ and a real sanctification. Like with Lutheranism, uh, there is this reality of union with Christ which brings us into relation with the Trinity, and this union does not deprive us of our humanity. We still remain ontologically man. Uh, Robert Lethem, in his work that compares Ethan Orthodoxy with the Reformed tradition, points out that the Christ with whom we are in union is of the same, the identical being of God. Strictly speaking, we are in union to his humanity, but his humanity is inseparable from his deity due to the hypostatic union. So union with his humanity is union with his person. Moreover, since the person of Christ is that of the eternal Son, we are united to God. Once again, this does not mean any blurring of the creator-creature distinction any more than the assumption of humanity by the Son into the Incarnation does. We still remain human. End quote. 
So being united to Christ, we find ourselves being made into what we ought to be, being freed from the grip of sin, uh, sinful and fallen nature. We are met with renewal to be like Christ, to be conformed to his image, to come to glorification, to be more holy, uh, to reflect God in love and grace and mercy. And this is something we all understand from the text, right? So Robert Leatham points out that uh, the West has neglected the participatory stress of the Christian life in the triune God. Uh, he states, indeed, it is impossible to understand the gospel apart from this vital category. Paul considers that our whole salvation is in union with Christ. Sidebar, that idea of living in the reality of Trinitarianism, highly recommend Fred Sanders' The Deep Things of God, great book on the practical implications of the Trinity. Um, anyway, so John Calvin uh, noted regarding the union with Christ that it is a mystical union where there is no merging with Christ's essence um, and ours, but rather the indwelling of Christ and his gifts in our hearts. He further points out that the union describes our participation in Jesus's humanity and the benefits of Christ's obedience. He states in Institutes um, that the flesh of Christ is like a rich and inexhaustible fountain that pours into us the life springing forth from the Godhead into us. Further, we cannot share in Christ's benefits without union with Christ. And in his commentaries on 2 Peter 4, he says, let us mark that the end of the gospel is to be conformed to God, uh, and if we may so speak, to deify us. And then he, of course, qualifies that. He says, but the word nature here is not essence, but quality. Um, and then he speaks a little bit to, uh, there is also at this day fanatics who imagine that we will pass over into the nature of God so that he swallows us up, um, or so that he swallows up our nature. And that's his commentary on Second Peter. So again, the consistent strain is that we ontologically do not become God. We are uh, participating in the divine nature. We are united to Christ's humanity, our union with Christ and his person. Um, and so that's significant. Uh, we are being moved to a state of glorification, and that is deification. That is, we will be immortal, we will be glorified, and we will be conformed to Christ's image in love, holiness, etc. So I would put forward as others have, that the distinction between East and West at this point focuses on uh, incarnation and resurrection versus the atonement. Uh, again, uh, further, I would stress that both are right in their regards, and in terms of Eastern Orthodoxy, there is a lack of discussion on forensic elements of justification, which they admit um, in many circles, including in the study Bible. Um, they simply don't have a dogma on the issue. They never, they never had to deal with that in particular because they were separate from the the issues of the reformation and before we move on to the next section i just want to say that there is a debate between the early christian thought as participation and deification versus a later accusation of mystical union of eastern thought where there's this absorbing into the being of god but i'm ignorant on that i can't speak to that but it's something worth looking into if you feel so led so what is the biblical warrant of this um the historical aspects all fine and dandy uh, thankfully, many of us are so well acquainted with much of what has already been said, such as growing in holiness, being united to Christ, uh, that we'll have glorification, we'll be conformed to Christ's image, that we don't need to say too much here. But the question is the participation in the divine nature. That's, that's where we kind of, what are you talking about? Well, the key text is ultimately Second um, Peter. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his 
precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So that uh, divine nature is in juxtaposition to the corruption that is in the world. And of course, I would recommend you read the rest of the passage because it's fantastic. It's one of my favorites. Um, But regardless, Peter notes that through the promises of God, we become sharers or partakers of the divine nature. And this text is worth stressing the same thing that I have said over five times already. By being partakers in the divine nature, we are not participating in the divine essence or being. We are partakers in God's grace. And this is absolutely crucial. Uh, We share in Christ, according to Hebrews 3.14, and we share in the Holy Spirit, according to Hebrews 6.4. We are called to share in the glory of God as those united to Christ. Rather than being this mere external fellowship, we have an intimate participation in the divine grace of God. Um, With that, whenever you read John 14.16, and we look at Jesus and his teaching around the Holy Spirit, we read that the Holy Spirit will remain with us, Uh, the believers, and will be in us. And Jesus is present in the presence of the Spirit, 14, 16 through 17. And we find that those who love him, who love Jesus, will find residence with the triune God, John 14, 23. So as many Christians have pointed out, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon uh, a believer is the coming of the triune God into the life of the believer in a permanent residence. God indwells the believer, and we have a relationship with the triune God in a way that surpasses relations with other human beings. 1 John 3, 1 through 2 points out that we are now called God's children by our being united to Christ. Those who are in Christ are God's children. And we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is, according to 1 John. In Ephesians 1, we find this blessing, every spiritual blessings, all spiritual blessings are found in Christ. And that prepositional clause becomes um, very important. Um, And further in Corinthians Paul points out that believers will be transformed from one degree of glory to another by the Spirit of the Lord in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and this is likened to be better than that of Moses who had such an experience. Um, We have been created in Christ, united with Christ, and are being remade into the image of Christ. We live in and with our Creator, yet again, this is not a type of pantheism or mixture of our nature with God's nature. We drink from the well— and we live in the glorious reality of God himself. Now, this has been pretty brief um, to basically just flesh out deification as it's understood within sound Christianity. Um, we may touch on other things like the union of Christ later, but I'm not too sure. But what I wanted to do was discuss this in relation to little God theology, because you'll see deification get thrown around um, as little God theology. Uh, and so we'll examine that for a second here. So the word of faith summary. Now, When reading through original sources from Word of Faith teachers on this topic, um, there's some struggle there. First off, finding original sources is kind of tough because you're talking about uh, like TBN specials, right? Um, And you're talking about kind of old books. Um, So that's one thing to note. Second, finding, um, finding people who expound on their teaching of this doctrine in that camp is also difficult. Um, Just as well, some aspects of little God theology are similar to what we would call orthodox. So with this in mind, I must admit that this topic becomes a little bit more difficult to navigate, but let's sift through some materials. Let me see. So Kenneth Hagin uh, wrote um, in The God Kind of Life, um, 
God Hagen Ministries, 1989, that, quote, God made us in the same class of being that he is himself. Um, I wasn't going to put commentary as I read through this, but just put a pin in that. The same class of being that he is himself. Uh, and he further says that the believer is called Christ because that's who we are. We are Christ. Um, and earlier, uh, in his article from The Virgin Birth, Word of Faith Magazine, December 1977, he says that by being born again, the believer becomes as much an incarnation as Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, moving on from him, the famous Kenneth Copeland, who much of us know, says, when I read the Bible, when it says I am, I just smile and say, yes, I am too. And that's from TBN 1987, August 9th. Uh, when explaining further on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, he says, am I a God? Man was created in the God class. We are not created in the animal class. It was the God class. He has a uniqueness about him that even the angels do not have. Now, Peter said, by exceeding great and precious promises, you become partakers in divine nature. All right, are we gods? We are a class of gods. God himself spawned us from his innermost being. And that's a little bit telling if you've been tracking through the episode, but we'll get to the analysis in a minute. Um, this idea can be found in Jewish mysticism uh, in the Kabbalah um, and other Eastern ideas and pantheism or even Gnosticism, where we are in some um, form a part of the divine essence itself and can be reabsorbed into one supreme being, whatever you want to say about that. Now, how far this goes in the word of faith ideology and how much they actually implement it beyond the laws of attraction and um, calling things into existence, etc., because that's really the main application point, and we'll get to that later. Um, I'm not sure how far they take it. I'm not sure how much it affects other aspects, other theology, other than having this divine power on earth, um, especially as, as little creators. Now back to Kenneth Copeland um, and his message, The Force of Love. He talks about Second Peter and he says, God is God, he is spirit, and he imparted in you when you were born again. And Peter said that we are partakers of the divine nature. That nature is life eternal and absolute perfection. And that was imparted, injected into your spirit, man. And you have that imparted into you by God, just the same as you imparted into your child the nature of humanity. That child wasn't born a whale, it was born a human. Isn't that true? Well, now you don't have a human, do you? No, you are one. You do not have a God in you. You are one. And you can see how it takes that further. In fact, um, if you remember some of Athanasius' arguments against Arianism and through Nicaea, well, you probably made a connection there. Uh, so I don't know why I keep leaving little hints like that. But anyway, Benny Hinn, another famous Word of Faith teacher, would speak um, to the same point. But he acknowledges that ontologically, man is not divine, right? Um, he points out that God touched a piece of dirt and turned it into a God. And that's an important distinction, really, um, between him and Kenneth Copeland. Because Kenneth Copeland says that we, we were basically spewed out of God in this God class, out of his divine nature, whenever Benny Hinn rightly observes that no God created us out of the dirt. Um, but he, regardless of reasons in his message featured on TBN, uh, called uh, the praise of Thon, 1990, November 12th, and the Lord Chow, December 6th, 1990, where do they come up with these names? Uh, that as those who are born again, we are godlike, complete in Jesus Christ. Further, he says, quote, Say I'm born of heaven, God man. I am God man. I am a sample of Jesus. I am a super being. Uh, so, this line of thinking within the theological word of faith movement is fairly consistent, actually, uh, and usually consistent with itself and how it's expressed. I, I find that they almost say stuff in the same exact way every time which really isn't uh, 
too strange, but it makes it easy here. So you can find this in a number of teachers. I mean, talking like Joyce Meyer, of course, Kenneth Copeland. Uh, you find it sometimes uh, very subtly in, in Joel Osteen uh, and others. But, but here is the summary that I can put together of this framework. Adam was created the first son of God, made in the image of God. He was a little G-God of this world because God created him in the same class as himself. Now, men, angels, and the devils are referred to as little G-Gods in various texts, and so they would argue that uh, being in Christ makes you a part of Christ. Um, Christ's spirit lives in us, and we are joined to his spirit and are deified or brought back to our original restoration, whatever their fall looks like. I'm not really sure, but we are new creatures and being renewed back to that original divine class that we were before the fall. So we are new cre creations, new spirits, fully compatible with God's spirit. Now, what I can tell from what they teach is that this does not make us part of the divine Godhead, but our body is a type of God. We are a class of God. Um, so there's still that distinction, but I don't know how you could be of the same essence of God and not be partakers in the essence of God. And hopefully that flowed. Further, they would say that we could not live without Christ. Um, again, in whatever conception of hell and sin they perceive, because it, it's hard to hear them talk on things like that because they're so, I don't want to say positive because it's not positive whenever you really break it down, uh, but they're positive-oriented, positive thinking, right? Um, in connection with being part of Christ, we are taught to have faith of God uh, or to have faith in God and to speak in a way that believes that God will back our authority as little gods um, with his power. So in connection with being this little G-God for all men, we have this gift of speech and the random power of positive thinking, which denotes as God spoke and created, I can also speak and create, bringing health, wealth, and prosperity, right? Um, so an examination of all this, right? Breaking it all down. As with every teaching that is questionable, there are some aspects of truth in the ideology. Now, looking at what was said by Copeland and, and Hagen, uh, this idea of Adam being created as the image of God, therefore he's created as a being in the same class as God, is the presupposition that drives their particular notion. Um, this, is, this is important for their particular articulation. Benny Hinn, he begins with dirt. I don't see him expressing that we're the same class as God, but that through Christ we become the same class as God. So they they move in. He moves into a more pantheistic understanding of deification or mystic understanding. Um, so looking at that first articulation of Adam being created in the image of God, therefore he's created as a being in the same class of God. Somehow they're saying that he is not deity, but he is of the same being, the nature of God. Now, the problem with that is obvious, I think, is that if man is created as the same spiritual class of God, class is a categorization, what God is versus what creature is, right? The, the cre creature-creator distinction. If man is created as the same spiritual class of God, then his being deity is inevitable. I don't know how you can separate those. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, but whenever we, we see this, the word of faith adherence utilizing text of God's ontology and claiming abilities exclusive to deity, they have this belief in praxis. So while they may deny that we are divine, whenever Kenneth Copeland says, whenever God says, I am, 
I am too. We we see that there's there's this disconnect there or a dishonesty. If I'm giving you my full skeptical thoughts on the whole thing, um, so what I'm saying is that you simply cannot deny that man is divine if you're holding that man as part of the same class as God in being. Um, now, I hinted at earlier, Athanasius, against Arianism, stated that there is no degree in deity. The son is an actual son of the father, and that denotes his deity, because just as a father begets the same nature from himself, as a human begets a human son, so the father begets a divine son. And so there, there cannot be a degree of divinity, and you will ontologically be the same as those you are in the same spiritual class with. So Jesus is the unique or only begotten son in this way. We are adopted as sons because of our being united to the son, but we aren't ontologically by nature the only unique son, nor divine, nor the same class as the divine essence. We are not in the same class as Jesus Christ. We are not Jesus Christ. We are identified with Jesus Christ, and that's where another distinction is kind of broken. This identification versus deification, uh, in, in this case, the deification that makes us ontologically God, or the apotheosis that we mentioned earlier. So this injection of being of the same class of God into the concept of being in the image of God is unwarranted, not only because uh, the image of God can be highly debated, uh, but because there's no warrant for that. There's just, there's just not. Um, man is not in the animal class, agreed. He is in a different class than angels, agreed. But he is not in the divine class. He is not a god. He is unique, and according to Genesis, a fantastic creature, the crown of creation, according to the, the narrative of Genesis. But he is still ontologically a human, not an angel, and not God. Um, now, we could concede properly, as many theologians have, that the image of God has a connection to dominion and relationship, but not having the divine nature. The image of God is a much bigger topic that we can't really dwell on here. We can talk about that later, hopefully. Um, but really, the stress on the image of God as being representatives of God has some merit to it. Um, you see that. You are gods. Whenever the judges are called gods, it's because they are representing God as an agent on earth, not because they are ontologically divine. There's something to be said there. And you even see that with divine sonship as it's placed metaphorically on David as a type for Christ who will come. That divine sonship makes David an agent of God and a representative of God to the same point. Um, so the second point about the examination of word of faith, the, the idea that we are back into communion with God via Christ is obviously sound. The notion that we are not part of the divine Godhead is sound, but this also automatically excludes the same spiritual class of God right? Um, this idea of being a new creation, the necessity of Christ for life, incorruptibility, glorification in the future is all fine. We are in Christ and we can identify with Christ. That's fine. That's great. We should. Um, but it's also worth pointing out that us in sound teachings really need to make the proper distinction between, again, identification and deification. Identifying with Christ and understanding our realities in Christ is vital, but this does not necessitate deification in the sense of ontologically being God. Um, and that's where you see this really leap in Word of Faith articulations. And just the same, you will find this failure to distinguish identification with deification in those critiquing certain teachers. Whenever a certain teacher emphasizes their identification in Christ, 
for some reason, there is this idea of, oh, they're teaching little God theology. If we're going to say that someone is teaching this, we need to be absolutely certain. But someone's saying that we have new life in Christ and that we can walk according to the Spirit and having an emphasis on that new life in Christ does not mean they hold to apotheosis in terms of we're ontologically becoming God or we are little gods. And I think that that's important because there's a lot of teachers who have been falsely accused of this form of deification that do not teach that because they have an emphasis on identification, that, that new life in Christ versus the I'm a worm theology, which there's a place for both. There's a balance. I mean, we, we are new creatures in Christ. We, we, need to, we need to grasp that. That's, that's vital for living the Christian life. And I've spoken to that many times. Um, so where all this really falls apart, I think, is first their identification being beyond the biblical boundaries. Their identification goes so far as to be of the same divine class as God, even if they somehow deny the divine nature in humanity. It's hard. It's hard to have a synthesis on this because their their explanations, again, are vague. Um, and what they say on the surface can be critiqued pretty heavily. Uh, whenever uh, Kenneth Copeland says that out of his being we came... Uh, let me find the quote so I don't misquote it. We are a class of gods. God himself spawned us from his innermost being. Sounds like we came out of the divine essence and thus are a class of gods, which means that the divine essence was broken into parts, which is also problematic. Um, and then additionally, that we are deity. Um, so that's, that's problematic. So they either need to be much more clear if they don't mean that, but the way that they apply it is, is consistent with how they articulate it. Uh, so to the first point, we are not called Christ himself. We are not Christ himself, period. To live unto the mission of Christ is to live, right? We know that quote, uh, to live is Christ, and that's to live unto the mission for Christ. But we should not take this to mean that we are Christ himself. Um, he is still the head. He is still distinct. He is still supreme. We still bow to him. Now, there is some validity to the concept of a little God des designation, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of dominion or the role or function or ruling, but this does not necessitate the concept of ontologically being of the same class of God. Um, in these quotes, um, where they say things as, we are as much of an incarnation as Jesus, we find something really strange, it's a very strange thing to say. And to be honest, it's probably one of those things that was said to be profound and to be influential more so than theological, right? Because incarnation means enfleshed and is taken theologically and specifically and exclusively from John 1.14 in the Latin text about Jesus is taking on flesh. Like, it's bizarre to say that I, as an enfleshed corporal creature, have the same class as God, but I lost that class, and now I'm enfleshed in that class again. I, I don't know. It's bizarre. I, I, don't, I don't get it, to be honest. But anyway, um, so this overreaching of identification reaches its climax in those two instances I mentioned before. First, Copeland taking upon himself the divine designation of I am. That is utter blasphemy. There's only one I am. And the, and the fact that he would take that designation, uh, that is one of those things where unacceptable, no matter which way you slice it, no matter how you try to rationale through it, you are not I am. Um, and even whenever you get to Revelation, who is I am, the first and the last? It's God. Um, second, Benny Hens claiming to be a God man, this identification of being regenerate 
does not ontologically equal man being his own version of the hypostatic union. We are not God-man. We're just not. Um, so to wrap it all up, we, we talked briefly about the applications, the practices that flow from this, namely the power to create, heal, and control the world, right? They're, they're coming up a way to, to designate that. God created, therefore I can. I talked about this on my page a while back. Um, so if it is put forward that because we are the same spiritual class as God and we have the power to create as God did, um, then, then there's a problem. Because from divine revelation, we know that the Father created through the Son and by the Holy Spirit, right? Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1. Um, it's a Trinitarian work of God. Our words are not the word of God. Whenever I speak, it is not a divine agent coming out to create. I do not have control over the Son of God to create, nor the power of the Holy Spirit to create. That is the exclusive work of God. And the same goes with healing. Healing, regardless of where you stand with gifts, is still a power of God, not a power of yourself, not from your own divine prerogatives or um, divine likeness or spiritual being the same spiritual class as God. And controlling the weather or the world in some shape or form, bringing in materials, um, fashioning materials out of nothing. Uh, I've seen people try to say that they're going to fight off diseases, that they're going to fight off the weather, that they're going to do all these things that only God can do. Um, those are all gods. Those are, those, are, those are one of the profound moments in the Gospels where Jesus walks on water and you have this correlation with Job where it is I, he says to Job, who walks on the water as if on dry land. And then you have him controlling the weather. Who is this that controls even the weather? Jesus, who is divine. Uh, and, and he says again in Job, I am the one who controls the weather. Uh, you cannot take those. But see, that's the application. We're not divine, but we're of the same spiritual class. Therefore, we, we kind of are divine. Therefore, we can do the same things. But again, the triune God created and works all things together. The Father created through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. The Father spoke the word created by the power of the Holy Spirit. We do not speak the Son and command the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We abide in the Son and we appeal to the Father. And not every, we, we don't get to utilize God for our desires. And that idea that God will just back our authority is misplaced because we don't have that authority. We are to live for him. We worship him. We don't worship ourselves. He is not, um, we are not taskmasters, right? Um, and so the key distinction from all this that we can express, if I could summarize between the, the, the biblical position of deification and this little God theology is namely in man's foundational nature and relation to God in that nature. Man is ontologically man. Uh, and glorification, he's enhanced to be more man, to be as man was meant to be in a perfected state, ontologically, sure, in this higher glory. But he is not transformed ontologically into deity, nor is he of the same spiritual class as God. We are not, neither God nor angels. It's a false dichotomy. You say, well, we're not angels, therefore we're God. No, that's that's not how it works. We share in incorruption, but we are not given the dominion and power of God. We share in the divine nature, not in the sense of divine essence, 
but in, namely, moral qualities and grace. We are conformed to God morally and glorified and looking like Christ in his glorified state. Essentially, the distinction between the word of faith, little God theology, and orthodox deification, as far as I can tell, is the same distinction between the pagans of the early Christian church and the early Christians, and apotheosis, which is the fact or action of becoming a god in a literal sense, and theosis, the likeness or union with God, that still has that proper distinction between God's very essence and our essence. So I hope this was helpful. This was one of our longer episodes. Um, but I hope it really just kind of cleared up some of the ideas you might have had about this topic. And I hope it proved informative and got you to just think a little bit. And that if you feel so led, dive into more research. But God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Turn our eyes.